0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Annie Sepulkaya. New Books in Sociology is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore. Today I'm going to talk to Leslie Irvine, author of My Dog Always Eats First. Homeless People and Their Animals, published by Lynn Reiner Publishers in 2013. Through interviews with homeless people, the book explores the role of animals in the narrative construction of a positive identity. In addition, Leslie has studied animal sheltering, human-animal play, selfhood among animals, and the feminization of veterinary medicine. Her 2004 book, If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connection with Animals, received the Distinguished Scholarship Award from the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. Her articles have appeared in many journals, including Society and Animals, Gender and Society, Social Problems, The Sociological Quarterly, Qualitative Sociology, and Symbolic Interaction. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Annie. So today we are talking to you about your book, My Dog Always Eats First homeless people and their animals. To begin, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, why you decided to write this book?
1: Yes, I am a sociologist at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and for about the past 15 years, I've been studying people's relationships with animals. I've always been interested in animals, always uh, loved animals of all kinds, And it was only starting around 1999 when I came here to Boulder that I had the opportunity to see them in a scholarly sense. And as far as the the research on homeless people and their animals, I uh, got an email from an editor at Lynn Reiner Publishers um, about uh, a book they were interested in doing. And I have to say it's the idea of the editor, Andrew Brzezanskis, who had just, we, we have a lot of homeless people seasonally here in Boulder, as is true of many places, but we have a lot of regular transients who hang out in particular places with their animals, and he had just become curious about their lives, and how they provided for themselves and their animals, and he got in touch with me. And over a few coffee-fueled beatings, we decided on um, that I would uh, at least begin the research and see whether I took to it, because I wasn't, uh, as I explain in the book, I was not a homelessness researcher, and I wasn't really familiar with that literature or how to do the research at all. So once I got my feet wet and made a few contacts, I decided that it would make a great project. So how how did
0: you find access to these people?
1: At first my idea was that I would go up to the people I saw um, on the street hanging out and you know how it is when you are looking for something it's never there but when you don't need it or want to find it <laughs> it's <laughs> always there every time you turn around and that was the same thing with homeless people. And they're they're dogs in particular because obviously dogs are you know a, a bit easier to manage, more portable, and easy, uh, more obvious in public. But um, when I went out with my notebook and my voice recorder, I never ran into anybody. And then when I was would be you know on my way to something else, or when I wasn't prepared to do an interview, uh, there I would see you know on cor- street corner after street corner. <laughs> homeless people with their animals so I I realized how slow that would be and I um, started searching the net for um, clinics for veterinary clinics uh, that were for the pets of the homeless and I made a couple of really great connections I connected with um, the program known as vet SOS in San Francisco and the Mercer Street Clinic in Sacramento and with a very large shelter that does run clinics occasionally in Miami. And then I, I did contact several people just one-on-one on the street, but the bulk of the interviews were done with people who came to these uh, free clinics, for the, free veterinary clinics for the pets of the homeless. And the veterinarians and the technicians were, were the gatekeepers who helped me, helped, you know, explain to people that I was legit and um, – wasn't looking to exploit them in any way. And they had already, for the most part, established trusting relationships with the veterinarians at these clinics because of their animals. So it gave me a level of access that um, I wouldn't have had just had I just, you know, tried to approach people with the clipboard in hand.
0: And and these are clinics that
1: are free
0: for, for homeless people to take their animals to? and
1: They are free, yes. And they, okay. they do um, basic health exams, vaccinations, um, f- you know, for for licensing. And these clinics also do spay and neuter. They require that you spay and neuter your animals. They'll provide services once, and then you have to spay and neuter. And if if you don't, you know, you, you can't keep going back if you haven't spayed or neuter your neutered your animal. But in in both. Sacramento and in San Francisco, there are um, veterinarians and clinics who will um, provide coverage for the cost of of other kinds of surgeries apart from spay and neuters, too. So if an animal needs an eye surgery or a limb removal, um, there are people who've donated their services, and so oftentimes people have that available to them, too.
0: Did did you find that people wanted to talk to you about their pets or were they kind of hesitant?
1: For the most part, this is where the, the veterinarian gatekeepers were really important. Um, that you know, I not only had them introduce my research and and vouch for me, but because of the way these clinics are set up, people arrive in the morning in, in the case of Sacramento, they actually some people get in line the night before and spend the night sleeping there. But they uh, they have to hang out for hours and hours and hours and in this line to be seen uh, by one of the veterinarians. And so they have basically not much else to do. They're talking amongst themselves. And so I could just move through the crowd and, and talk to people. And, and in many instances, uh, people did seem really appreciative. They would say things like, oh, you know, nobody asked, has ever asked me that before. And homeless people are, you know, they they frequently experience uh, terrible treatment from um, the public on the street. And so, to have someone take their situation seriously and to not be a social service provider who's trying to see if they qualify for something, and to just be interested in what they have to say, uh, I have to say that. People seemed very appreciative of that.
0: Well, it's interesting. Something that I found um, that you talk about is that at the beginning of this research, you were a little bit skeptical because, you know, when we see a homeless person and we see them with a dog, we feel like, well, you can't really take care of that dog. We just kind of assume that. Um, I had an experience the other day. I was at a coffee shop and there was a woman who came in maybe about 19, 20 years old, completely stoned out of her mind, um, and she had this huge, big um, Labrador. And, you know, you assume, you look at her and you assume, well, you know, she can't take care of them, she really shouldn't keep a dog, and
1: you had that that sort of thinking as well when you first began, correct? I did. Uh, what changed me was um, many years of volunteering at an animal shelter. and. There's a a story I recount in the opening of the book um, where I say, there, you know, here in Boulder, we often have very high winds. And one night after about a 70-mile-an-hour windstorm at the shelter, a dog um, was brought in by animal control who had apparently gotten loose from his yard. And he was a very expensive dog, Shiba Inu, purebred. And he was microchipped and the staff contacted the guardian and he took about four days to finally get himself over and pick up the dog and a couple days later the dog got loose again and showed up at the shelter again he took his time even contacting the shelter to find out if the dog was there but eventually he just decided that the dog was too much of a pain and, and surrendered him um, meanwhile, there was a homeless man who lived in the the mountains in the forest outside of Boulder, and he had also lost a dog that in that same windstorm. But he had walked easily 15 miles down to the shelter to check and see if his dog had been turned in. And he kept making these repeated trips, and he made... Um, you know, handmade signs to post in the coffee shops and places around, have you seen this dog? And he would hang out at the shelter to wait for animal control to see if they brought his dog in. The staff many, many times saw him crying and he actually wore out his shoes walking, looking for his dog. And so the staff took up a collection to buy him a new pair of shoes. But this this incident made me really question my assumptions about who was the better guardian. You know, the guy who had the house and the yard but who considered his dog just another inconvenience or the man who wore his shoes out looking for his lost dog. And so I began to see that you don't just because you have a house doesn't mean that you can provide Good care for an animal, certainly, I would love to see um, no homeless people as well as no homeless animals. I think we'd all um, mo- for the most part be better off <laughs> sheltered from the cold and the and the heat, but it, mm-hmm. just having that shelter isn 't what makes you a good animal guardian mhm
0: the how so how do homeless people deal with? this sort of um, stigma because they're aware that people don't um, believe they, they should not be keeping pets and some people outright say it right they say it right to their face when they're walking down the street um,
1: so what are some of the ways in which they deal with this kind of um, treatment yeah that was that was an eye-opener to hear to a person that when they're out in public with their animals they just every day get accused you know you you don't deserve to have a dog you can't even take care of yourself uh, why don't you give your dog up and uh, the, the strategies that they used to respond to those kinds of attacks varied somewhat depending on age and time on the street the um, the homeless youth uh, really responded with anger and a lot of times profanity like you know swearing at them F you who the hell are you to tell me this and blah 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 but most people um, either ignored what they had to say or or tried to, to educate people and what I saw most often was a strategy I call redefining um, companion animal guardianship And, you know, I found that homeless people had absolutely no trouble getting food for their animals. If they were out in public, just members of the community would come by and give them bags of dog food or cat food, uh, boxes of biscuits. And I thought I was going to be a good Samaritan and reward people for talking to me by giving them a small bag of dog food and and turns out or or cat food and it turns out that they ha- always in all cases although they were grateful for anything i gave them they didn't need pet food and so um and, and this is also the case with the the veterinary clinics the veterinary clinics provide uh donated dog and cat food and and biscuits and treats and so i use this this um notion that you get resources from from one source to then um, protect yourself from assaults from another source so they would get the, the dog food from the veterinary clinic and then they would be able to say look i feed i feed my dog my dog even my dog eats first and they would mm-hmm. redefine guardianship uh, in terms of uh, here's what they'd say they'd say to someone well Where's your dog at home in a crate all by himself for eight hours, ten hours? My dog's with me 24-7. My dog is out in the fresh air. My dog gets to run around in the park. My dog's uh, got other people and other dogs with them all the time. So they would redefine themselves as even better guardians (laughs) than people with homes could be because they would just leave their dogs alone all day. A good point. Yeah, so they would. I I talk about this as as a strategy for creating a a positive moral self. You know, they they would um, take the resources that they had access to, the donations of food, and and use that to make sure they'd say, look, my my dog ate today. I've got plenty of food. Look, here's a twenty pound bag of food right here.
0: Well, you also, you talk about how this strategy, it's not just um, in order to alleviate the stigma, but also kind of um, it makes them feel, I guess, more, um, I'm not, I don't remember the term that you used, but sort of uh, more like, like a person in the sense that, uh, you know, they're homeless, they're already stigmatized, they're already kind of down on their luck, but having a pet kind of
1: elevates them to a different status. That's right. They, you know, as I said, homeless people face so many assaults from uh, members of the public that they encounter on a daily basis, assaults to their character, and, and, and having an animal uh, might provide, you know, the, the kind of psychological um, benefits, but when they're able to say, look, I've got food I provide for my dog, my dog always eats first, Uh, then they're able to present themselves as a person who's um, responsible and worthy and deserving of animal uh, companionship. Could you talk
0: a little bit about the different categories of homeless people that you interviewed? Because you noted some differences between them.
1: Yeah. I, um, I found people who were... Uh, first of all the newly homeless you know they were on the uh, on the streets for you know, approximately 6 months less and and they were usually uh struggling to learn the ropes of being homeless i had more than one person tell me that there's a skill set associated with being homeless and that it takes a long time to learn how to get um how to qualify for the resources that you're eligible for, where to find a safe place to sleep, where to find places to park, um, and things like that. So those newly homeless people were really um, struggling to um, learn what they needed to learn, but also they they were still hoping to be able to get off the street pretty soon. There were also... Uh, straddlers what I people I call straddlers these were people who uh, were back on the street for a second or third time or maybe they were chronically homeless you know having bounced on and off uh, uh, in and out of homelessness for a number of years and so they they still they were straddlers in the sense that they had a foot in both the domiciled world and the street world and um there were also homeless youth or travelers um, who happened to be mostly youth. And, and these were kids who hitchhiked or walked or hopped trains, often with their, their dogs. And they they used their animals. They really relied on their animals for protection. They slept in some some very, very scary places. And I also had the opportunity to talk with some people who had recently – Gotten off the street after uh, quite a long, um, quite long bouts with homelessness, either uh, you know a single bout of long duration or chronically homeless for a long period of time. And I discovered that they all have different kinds of relationships with their animals, although they certainly, you know, have some similarities. That the circumstances. Of one's homelessness shape the 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 way you relate to your animal, the kinds of things that you um, draw from the relationship. Whether it's the protection that you need because you're a, a young person um, traveling and, and sleeping in doorways, or whether it's the, the friendship and the stability you need uh, because you're newly on the on the street and everything is just unfamiliar and scary. So,
0: These these new people, these people that were uh, just recently homeless, did they get a dog after they were homeless, or did they have the dog before
1: in, and then become homeless? In most cases, they had the dog before they became homeless. There, okay. there were just a few people who had acquired animals beforehand. And I've been talking mostly about dogs here, so I, I do want to put in... Um, equal time for <laughs> for cats. Um, yes, <laughs> you know I, I said before dogs are just more portable. They're easy, more easy to move around in public with. But I did run into people who had cats, and even some fairly large numbers of cats. And these were mostly people who lived in um, a stable. <laughs> Stable in in air quotation mark situations such as abandoned buildings or um, junked vehicles. Um, I talked to one woman who lived in a, a junked school bus that was in uh, a storage yard, and she had you know uh, dozens of cats that she cared for. So uh and I, I met a couple of people who traveled around with cats, but by and large, you know, their their needs just don't really lend themselves all that well to traveling the way that dogs do because because they can because they can walk uh more easily next to a person. Um but uh I did talk to people who had lots and lots of cats. Um they either had them before they were on the streets, or they, they lived in situations where, uh, you know, they'd had a cat or two, and then um, it was a situation like a junkyard or a storage yard where people would regularly dump cats anyway. And so they began taking care of all these additional stray and abandoned animals.
0: Something you mentioned that I thought was interesting is in terms of the, the demographics that most of your female respondents had partners or spouses, but most of the men were single. Do you have any idea why that
1: is? Um, I I can speculate. My sample wasn't – I had no intention of doing, you know, a generalizable, statistically reliable sample. So um, I can't generalize from the people I interviewed, but from what I know – about um, the the research on homelessness at large or overall, um, there are more resources available to women, um, especially women with children. So you see fewer of them as a rule on the street to start with. And the men um, who are on the street have simply... You know, they've been in situations where they've often been to jail or they have addiction issues and they have simply worn out the social safety net that they had around them. You know, they've gotten divorced or they've been in a bad relationship and they've, you know, their parents are dead or they've, you know, been more or less disowned by their families. So I think it it had a lot to do with um behavioral issues surrounding you know, criminal records, addiction, and the fact that there are fewer women out there in the first place. So, yeah, I found that interesting, too. But um, as I said, it's not a statistical, statistically generalizable sample. So um, I can only speculate based on some of the research I know that exists already.
0: Right. You talk about some of the ways in which homeless people um, view their pets, the kind of relationship they have with them. So some people uh, view them as friends and some people as family. Can you talk a little bit about that and the
1: the differences that you saw? Yeah. Uh, I really struggled, by the way, with uh, the the friend and family category because uh, one reviewer for the book said, well, you know, we don't – we don't choose our family. We're we're stuck with them for better or for worse. And some people have a lot of trouble with family members. So, do you really want to say that this is a good kind of relationship? And what I was getting at there was um, that the you know the family saying that a, an animal is like a family member uh, is more like saying the, the the dog or the cat is your child or your baby. Your son or your daughter, and I did hear a lot of that. But then I also heard a lot of more egalitarian language of of friendship, and that's so. That's not absolutely not to say that I'm putting one above the other. I'm not saying friendship is better than being a family member, and and I'm not. I'm trying not to um, associate any baggage with the term family. I'm just trying to say that there's a. Um, kind of a parental relationship, but there can also be um, a peer relationship where this is, this is, this is my best buddy. And, and I'll point out too, that people often use the same, uh, both terms in the same sentence. They would say, yeah, he's my best buddy or she's my best buddy. She's my little girl. So you know, they, they, that's why I had to deal with the terms together friend and family. Right, right.
0: Um, I think you said at some point, um, correct me if I'm mistaken, that uh, men used uh, the language of family more often than women, or no?
1: Yeah, they did. And this gets back to the point uh-huh. you made where I think that men on the street. You know, they by and large don't have these other relationships that the women had, either through children or spouses or or, or human companions. Hmm.
0: Did you see this as an advantage or a disadvantage in terms of this? Um, speaking of,
1: you know, pets as as children, let's say. Um. I can see – I saw the definite benefits of it for for people um, who use that language. You know, they would uh, – it would allow them to give themselves a little bit of credit for their ability to take care of another being in in the way that a parent would take care of a child. And, again, I'll go back to the point where these are people who just, you know, at at every turn – Every aspect of society, they're being told that they're um, unworthy, undeserving, not qualified, unable to do whatever, not responsible, that, they're, that they've that they brought on their own fate. And then to have a relationship where they're able to put themselves or depict themselves in the position of a care provider, that really does give them um, – a, a moral sense of self-worth that i saw as incredibly valuable.
0: You talk about something called the promissory self, which i think relates to this. Could you kind of explain what that is and uh how you saw that?
1: Yeah. Um the the promissory self is um a, comes out of a relationship with an animal. It's something that that um it's it's a sense of who one could be or or um i'll use the word should be if things were different and so this is kind of like you know if 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 i could do that then i would be um you know we we wish for things to happen because then everything would be perfect this is you know something that could happen in the future and the animal is part of that, of helping that person reach that goal. So that's why I use the term promissory, that it's like, oh, uh, now I have this dog with me and together we're going to get off the street or um, together the future's going to be better because I have him or her.
0: So most people that you spoke to were relatively optimistic about their futures?
1: Uh I would say yes, um, or neutral. I talked to very few people who were um, really in situations of doom and gloom. But I also should say that I was really focused on their relationship with their animals. So I wasn't. I did. All, I did talk about their prospects for housing. I, I asked everyone, um, "What would it take to get?" yourself off the street and so we talked about those circumstances but I was really focused on the relationship with the animal which for the most part is uh, the best part of their lives and they were at veterinary clinics where they were receiving free care for the animals that they that they loved so it was a very it was a selective environment you know I wasn't asking them about um oh the, the things that that were might have been real downers <laughs> although i did he- sure. hear you know in that population you do hear tragic stories but um by and large i was asking them about a positive part of their lives so yeah I, they were largely optimistic
0: you talk about one category of homeless people called travelers and which i think are are young people who who want to be homeless almost um uh, correct me if i'm wrong and that they had a shockingly optimistic outlook that it kind of surprised you
1: they did and and i i was very cautious about not sounding like i was romanticizing so the the travelers were by and large young people who You know, we might call them transients. They preferred not to define themselves as homeless. They defined themselves as traveling, which is why I I use the term. And so they would just, um, at some point in their young lives, hit the road. And ideally for them, most of them, there was a dog involved. And they would um, hitchhike or... um, (laughs) Hop freight trains, trains, and I have to say, I really didn't until I did this research. I thought that was um, something that pretty much went out with the you know, I I knew about hobos hopping freight trains in the 1930s, but I really didn't think that people did much of that anymore. But the kids kind of took it as um, you know, a badge of a a milestone in their lives if they had done that, and they all said that their dogs (laughs) hated it, by the way. But yeah that the the travelers uh were interestingly they they were about the same age as the students I teach at the university but they and 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 they were in very very different circumstances you know they just had what they had in their backpacks and um they really saw themselves as self assured and that they were doing what they claimed to be wanting to do now i they could have been just really skilled at spinning identities for you know this this middle-aged researcher who was sitting in front of them but because i saw it so frequently i began to think that you know there must be something to it otherwise every single person <laughs> um couldn't be faking in the same way but they were very um as i said self assured um they knew that they were that, that they had uh were living a kind of life that they had, they claim to have chosen. Now, whether, the, you know, to the, ex- the extent to which they actually did choose those circumstances, I can't say. I don't know enough about individual backgrounds. I do know that that a lot of kids who mature out of the foster care system in the United States, uh, when they turn 18, they're essentially, you know, <laughs> kicked out of the house. They have, they have no resources, and a lot of Former foster kids end up homeless, so there's a real question about how you can say that's a choice. And some of them came from very abusive backgrounds, but some of them made a decision that they wanted to, you know, see the country and see if they could do this um, on their own, uh, just making their own way. And and I saw them, you know, dispositionally as more, much more optimistic and confident. Then the students I'm in contact with every day who can't seem to handle you know they have a breakdown if their if their printer runs out of ink or something like that um, and again I I I didn't want to romanticize the the because their lives were certainly hard and dirty and and, and um, you know not something I I would want to emulate in any way but but I was impressed by by them. In in general,
0: hmm. any idea why you think they're so much more optimistic than the the students that you're that you're with? Is it a sort of um, I don't know? I guess when you when you have your basic needs met, maybe there's a some kind of
1: settling that goes on, or it could I don't that, know. It could be that it could be that there is um, you know even uh, among the kids on the street even if they, they didn't actually choose their life, there is this kind of youthful rhetoric of choice that, you know, kind of a defiant, this is what I want to be doing thing. And I'm, you know, I'm living the life, life the way I want to live it. And, um, you know, middle-class kids in college, I think, although many of them appreciate what they have, they, I think they feel like they're just kind of following the rules. And so there isn't that right that defiance that I saw among the travelers. Mm, that makes sense. So,
0: in terms of this research, what do you want people to take away from it?
1: Uh, well, I would at the at the practical level, um, I would love to see individuals have more you know, respect for homeless people. And their animals on the street I'm not advocating for more homeless people on the street. I'm just saying the next time you see a homeless person with an animal or without an animal, you know look them in the eye, say good morning um, if you don't want to give them a donation of money, that's fine, but maybe then donate to a local nonprofit that um, reaches out to homeless people and if you have a a burden in your heart for animals, you might want to contribute to any organi- of the organizations that do provide services for the pets of the homeless. and at the at the level of policy, I would really like to see um, policymakers and nonprofits recognize the extent to which animals really are important parts of people's lives. And this this is a bigger issue, too, because, um, you know, in my field of sociology, um, sociologists still don't recognize that people consider animals as family members, too. In fact, there are more households with animals in the United States than there are households with children. And I think, you know, with the um, recognition that animals are part of people's families, I think we could, um, you know, we could begin to allow them in subsidized housing more than we do. Um, they might, having an animal might be, might involve a set of skills that translates well to, to being a responsible tenant, for example. And so allowing someone to keep uh, a pet when they get off the street and get into housing uh, might have um, benefits in the long term. So, practical level, I would say um, just be, be nicer, be kinder, and on a policy level, let's, let's begin to think bigger, think outside the box of a nuclear family for housing, and I understand that the homeless have many, many, many needs, mental health needs, substance abuse needs, job skills, um, chronic illness and at the risk of adding just one more thing to the list i would like to see um companion animal relationships taken into consideration and that's just not you know oh i can i see that i can get this apartment so i'll run out to the um i'll i'll run to craigslist and get an animal but there are ways that we could requ- we could establish um um uh, Evidence of responsible guardianship. You know, ha- is this animal spayed or neutered? Do you have uh, a license? Ha- is the rabies vaccine uh, up to date? Um, in the case of dogs, do you have a collar and leash? Um, that kind of thing. You know that we have the the canine good citizenship test in this country for dogs who are going in to do visitations in hospitals and nursing homes, and we could we could have some sort of policy along those lines for landlords to determine um, whether the animal is well-behaved enough um, to live in a, a, rental, a rental housing. Right.
0: Great. So, if people want to know more about this research and buy your book, um, where should they look?
1: Is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon. Um, any local bookstore can order it if it's not on the shelf. Um, Or you can go directly to Lynn Reiner Publishers and order it online. Great.
0: Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for talking to us today about your book. My pleasure, Annie. You have been listening to an interview with Leslie Irvine on her new book, My Dog Always Eats First, Homeless People and Their Animals. This is your host, Annie Sokakaya.
1: Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.